Hey, Velocity Church, good to see you this morning on this beautiful fall, rainy, uh, rainy morning. Man, what, what a beautiful week it has been. I hope you've been able to get out and enjoy that a little bit. Maybe even, uh, you know, intentionally go out and enjoy that instead of staying in and, you know, listening to the news or being on social media or something like that. Maybe kind of turn that down a little bit and turn the getting outside, fresh air, nature and stuff a little bit up over the next couple weeks. Uh, it will be better for your physical and mental health and well-being. For sure. Anybody catch that World Series game last night and see the ending of that? It was crazy. You got to look up the replay. Even if you're not a baseball fan, one of the craziest things I've seen, I figured this would be the last Sunday I could wear this shirt and still, you know, the Washington Nationals still be the national uh, champion or the world champions, I guess, for for some reason we call it the World Series. But that works. Um, And and so I'm going to celebrate in that way. World Series is almost over, but most of you don't care about baseball, so that's all right. Hey, like Sarah mentioned, we're starting a brand new sermon series, and some of you, like if you didn't know that that was coming, uh, some of you are kind of like, huh, I'm not sure if I picked the right Sunday <laughs> to come or to tune in. We're going to see where this is going. Let me, uh, let me remind you, though, that this is not a one-week sermon series, so uh, just to let you know, that's a little bit of a preview. We're going to be talking about this over the next couple weeks, and here, here's, let, let me share this with you. When it comes to our worship together through God's Word, every Sunday, we open up the Scripture. Every Sunday, we study God's character and his nature and what it means uh, for our own character and nature as our lives are living sacrifices and worship to God. There is no area in life, and this is really important, there's no area in life that is compartmentalized from that. And so there's no other drawer that we put things in and kind of keep separate from our life. That encompasses everything. The truth of who God is, the relationship he desires to have with us, the relationships that he desires to have with each other. All of us are from different life backgrounds, whether it's faith or whether it's work or whether it's family. Uh, Whatever those are, we have our own unique lives and our unique callings. But the reason that we come together is through the leading of the Holy Spirit, and we've been called to be a unified body functioning as the bride of Christ, united on the foundation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, one of the perils of not doing this regularly, of not gathering together regularly and worshiping together, not being in God's word uh, on a communal level and on a personal level, is that those things become less of a priority, and in turn, our words, our actions, and our attitudes become less guided by God and his wisdom, and default, we become, by default, we become guided by, at best, our own assumptions, and at worst, by a functional atheism, both of which ignore the spiritual and practical worldview that faith in God through Jesus Christ should produce, namely this, a practiced faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior builds unity on that foundation of him being the Christ while a passive faith in God produces separation along world-defined dividing lines. So that's why we're talking about this, and that's why this sermon series is here, what, and what I'm hoping will be a breath of fresh air for all of us as we talk about the reality that we find ourselves in, and that is that people are sharply divided along political lines, upon uh, economical lines, and social lines. However, those things need not divide the church when we're consistent in our civic duty in the kingdom of God, in which we are citizens as followers of Jesus. While we do not have a dual citizenship, uh, we are given a specific political position to fill as Christians, uh, but we're going to talk about that next week and not, not today. 
Uh, so you can look forward to that. Although if you were in week two of our small group series that we're going through, uh, you've got a little bit of hint there. All right, so our goal for this sermon series, and I don't normally start off a sermon series like this, but this is very introductory, just to kind of give you the reason why we're mixing the two things you should never mix in your life, right? So think about Thanksgiving and what you look forward to. It's talking politics and religion with the family, right? I mean, that's why you get together. It's not about the food at all. But our goal for this sermon series is to orient or perhaps reorient our understanding of the life and teachings of Jesus within his context rather than ours, to then build a faithful understanding of not just how faith and politics intersect or intermingle, but how our faith in Jesus produces participation in a completely different political structure of God's kingdom aside from the kingdoms of this world. It's easier said than done, I can assure you. Uh, this is not the first time, and it won't be the last, that we've talked about politics from a biblical perspective at this church. Now, fair warning, I'm not going to tell you how to vote. Now, I know like some of you are like, oh, that's, that's relieving to hear, and others are like, oh, man, that that's, uh, creates more tension. So no, no, you should tell people how to do that. But we will deal with the specifics of how and why we should think about and interact with our political environment. Engagement in the culture around us is important, something that God expects of us, and, and just not in the ways, just not always in the way the world tends to think about it. I'm praying for you, I'm praying for a congregation, I'm praying for the American church, I'm praying for the global church as we navigate our way toward unifying through Jesus. All right, so let me do that right now. We're going to pray, and then we're going to keep on. God, I, I ask right now, I, I know that you are always with us, your presence is always here as we're gathered together and we're worshiping uh, you as a unified body of believers but God, I just ask that we be especially aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit within our hearts and our souls and our minds right now as we think about what it means to pursue your kingdom. God, we love you. Uh, we thank you for your call in our lives. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, let me create a hypothetical scenario for you, all right? You ready for this? And I, I, I think we're all going to enjoy this one. I really do. Um, let's say there's a decision to be made between two men, okay? Remember, this is hypothetical. Uh, both are well-known. Both are at the height of their fields. There's bitter disagreement about who would be better. Again, totally made-up scenario. But nobody's laughing, so that makes me feel like we're... The tension is building. Uh, one has been uh, in the game, if you will, longer than the other. Both, uh, you know, between the two, they have global implications. One is viewed to be more successful than the other, depending on your definition. One has seemed to, seemed to be kind of more of a, an, opportunist, an opportunist and has had their own version of success through that. Uh, one has always been blunt with those around him. Some view one to be the greatest thing that has ever happened, uh, in their respective field. Some view the other as a welcome change to take on the mantle and the decision between the two. There is vehement disagreement, the line most sharply drawn perhaps between young and old. And if you don't pick the right answer, the side opposite of you believes you to be ignorant of the issues that are at stake. And, and maybe that's the nicest thing that they would say is that you're ignorant if you don't pick the right one. And to me, the answer to who is most deserving in the choice between the two, uh, the most deserving of overwhelming support is painfully obvious. To me, I can't believe that there's even a debate. Um, of course, you know I'm not talking about a hypothetical scenario at all. 
I'm, of course, referring to the decision between who is the greatest, LeBron James or Michael Jordan. It's obvious that it's Michael Jordan, and I just don't understand that it's, that it's even a conversation. Now, um, let, let's talk about your, your mood and your, like right now my heart's racing just in anticipation of the tension that, that I'm kind of hoping was, was being built. So if you're at, you're at home right now, like I hope you didn't tune out uh, based on some of the things uh, that, that, I, that I said there. But, uh, you know, think about physically where your body is right now. Is your heart pumping just a little bit harder maybe like that? Or, or are you kind of just feeling a little bit shakier? I mean, I, I am and I'm up here like I knew what I was going to say. Uh, but just in thinking about how, how we react to those things, that fight or flight, you know, uh, uh, you know response that maybe our body gets into. Um, you th- maybe if you thought I was describing two of the most uh, visible candidates for presidency in our country, um, be- depending on how you thoughtful you believed I was being <laughs> in those descriptions, uh, maybe you were ready to leave, like walk out the door, your fight or flight response started up, um, and you wouldn't be alone because there are a lot of people in that mode right now just in general over that. They're in fight or flight, and, and that, like, that is the response that's leading, leading the way. Over the last several months, people have been itching for a fight over all kinds of issues. Um, so many presumably righteous causes, and it's been largely disappointing to me, to be quite blunt and honest, to see how most, many Christians have responded. And, and when I say that, I'm talking about like on a countrywide scale. I'm not talking about just our, our congregation. Responding violently, whether through actions or words, is kind of baked into our culture's DNA, to be sure. Uh, it's certainly a part of how our nation came into be- to being. Uh, but that doesn't have to be how we're guided in, in how, how we go about our, our relationships with each other. You, you think about how we romanticize some things that go on and, and ignore kind of the, the practical, pragmatic way in which we ga- engage in the world around us. And so we romanticize, for example, the birth of a nation. We think about, oh, America was born, that's great, that's amazing, and and I'm grateful to be in this country. But let's be honest, there are some things that come along with a birth that aren't that great. Uh, Renee and I have been through four pregnancies. We have three beautiful uh, children, and and that's amazing. But let me tell you, uh, I've been there for the birth of all of them, and um, it's kind of messy, and it's kind of loud. And, uh, you know, the nurse says, hey, are you ready to hold your kid? Yeah, absolutely. Can you, can you, can you wipe her off first? I, I, would, I would appreciate that. Hopefully that's okay for me to admit. I don't know. I'm feeling maybe there could be some judgment coming on, along here. Um, I'll, I'll hold her, though, after she's cleaned up a little bit. I know it's idealistic to not want to have those type of realities present within our histories or within our present or within our future. I've recognized that about myself. I, I happen to be idealistic, although some of, uh, some of you who know me really well, uh, I, I don't know, you can ask Renee. Um, but I'm concerned that in this respect, many American Christians have too readily accepted a role within the earthly battles that exist without understanding the nature of Jesus' ministry and how that ought to affect our role. Uh, Christians, I, th- I believe, are in danger of having a sanitized view of Jesus being purely religious, and that's it. So Jesus c- kind of compartmentalized over here. He's over there. Yeah, God became flesh, and that's great, and so it affected some things spiritually, but it doesn't really affect anything else in my life um, when that's not at all how his followers viewed him or how his enemies viewed him, quite frankly. 
In the scope of our history, uh, our view of secularism is, is brand new. Um, the separation of church and state and how we view that, the function of our faith's influence on how we engage with the world around us, including politics, that we'll miss the mark if we don't have a good understanding of the context in which Jesus' ministry took place or in the context of what he said and what it meant for the people around him. Uh, by the way, this isn't anything I haven't said before, but the current reputation of the big C church uh, is to make this much messier than it should be. And when that happens, instead of pointing people to Jesus, we end up pointing people to politicians. Here's a phrase I used from a sermon three years ago. Our kingdom theology should outweigh our political ideology. And, and one of the things that if, if I were to think about that and reflect on that, one of the mistaken conclusions that I think people take away from that statement is that our faith should inform our politics and that's it. Uh, when in reality, it's meant for us to recognize that our role is not to determine whether fellow believers who vote Republican or Democrat are Christians or not. Like, that's, that's not the goal. There, there's not a political structure. And, and I get we have, we have thoughts, I do too, opinions about that and what that means, implications about so many different things. But stick with me here. There's not a political structure that exists that represents the kingdom of God. That was the lesson that we learned from the nation of Israel and their desire for a political structure is a direct rejection of God. Let me read for you 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 through 9. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. How is that for a criticism? Now appoint for us the king to judge us like all the other nations. I added other there, but that's what they're looking at. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And don't, don't get caught up in a monarchical, uh, monarchical I, I don't know how, I, don't, I probably butchered that, a political system. Um, but God's talking about being a ruler regardless of how we think about that. Uh, according to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. I mean, that, that, that's the context we're given way back at the formation of the kingdom of Israel. Be informed. Recognize policies that dehumanize and create obstacles for people to experience biblical principles. Pursue prayer, fasting, Bible study, being more familiar with who God is to determine how you think about politics and political platforms, because both of those things matter. But ultimately, we're going to move forward together, unified, undivided as a body of Christ, because the mission of the kingdom we belong to supersedes the mission of any other human establishment or kingdom of the day. Jesus' ministry tackles this head on. And let me give you just a little, a, a, a brief picture of the political context in which Jesus conducts his ministry. Um, here's the political reality of Jesus' day. I'm just going to give you a list. It's going to be up on the screen of the political uh, factions that existed in Jesus' day. Now, you had the anti-Roman Galileans, 
of whom Jesus was accused of being, and uh, his, a lot of his disciples were from there. You had the pro-Herod rule, Herodians. They were Jews. Herod was the king, um, a line of kings that you know, weren't that great, if you know about the, the birth of Jesus. Uh, the Levites who were in charge of the temple, so they cared about all those things. The Pharisees who championed the oral written law, some of these are going to be familiar to you. The publicans who were simply the tax collectors for Rome who were hated uh, by the Jews as, uh, uh, as traitors. The Sadducees, priestly insiders of the upper class who uh, were totally uh, against the Pharisees, although you know, they unified together to kill Jesus. The Samaritans, who were considered ethnically inferior to the Jews. The Sanhedrin, which were the supreme court of the day uh, the, for, for the Jewish nation. Uh, the scribes, who were experts in religious law. And the nationalist zealots, who desired to return to a theocracy for the nation of Israel. And you thought having to choose between two was bad. Of course, those who were looking for the Messiah and happy to see Jesus come along knew exactly what they wanted from Jesus, and they knew exactly what Jesus was going to do. The Messiah, Jesus, would save them from political oppression and usher in an autonomous earthly kingdom for the nation of Israel with God ruling on his earthly throne. And obviously they got it exactly right because as you read in the Bible, in the New Testament, Jesus rounded up an army and his 12 apostles were the generals with two swords between them all, uh, overthrew the Roman Empire and the rest of history as it continues to reign on that earthly throne today, right? Because we all know our history and that's exactly what happened. No, it didn't happen that way. Uh, those that didn't want the status quo interrupted uh, because they enjoyed their earthly possessions and positions, and you know those that were like tax collectors, the Herodians, they didn't want the Roman Empire overthrown. They were perfectly comfortable to be under the arm of a pagan uh, society. Um, they enjoyed all of that, so they unified to execute Jesus, so they wouldn't he wouldn't upset the apple cart, so they could keep everything the same. It didn't work out for them anyway, because a living sacrifice was exactly the reason Jesus came. Now, no one on that list got what they expected, and no one on that list got what they wanted out of Jesus. But everyone got what had to happen, what they needed desperately for their lives in order to overcome our broken ideas and actions, our sin, and how we relate to God and to other people. Jesus' death and resurrection was every bit as impactful politically as it was spiritually. He died a political death as a result of broken politics. Yes, God had, an, uh, had a, a, a much bigger plan for why that happened, all that kind of stuff, but again, that's part of the context in which Jesus' uh, ministry existed. That's precisely why in the face of humanity's solution to go to war for political gain, Jesus ushers in the earth, on earth as it is in heaven, pursuit of the kingdom of God and the fullness of grace and truth through love and the justice of self-sacrifice. Eugene Cho uh, writes in his book, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, I like that title. Um, he says, we are inundated, inundated by politics, party, and power in these confusing times, but this is precisely why we must be about the kingdom of God. If you feel hazy about what the kingdom of God looks like, look to Jesus. I love this sentence. He's not a domesticated puppet of our worldly power structures. There's a lot packed into that, that sentence. The crucified and risen Christ is our Lord and Savior. 
Indeed, we must keep looking to Jesus. Better yet, we must make sure we don't just admire him from afar, but actually worship and follow Jesus, his words, his teachings, and his ways. The fact is, and this is just the reality in which we live, and remember I said we're going to talk about that, if you believe that there are only two sides of the aisle, uh, you'll be tempted to believe the person on the other side is someone you are at war with, even if you're in the same room worshiping together, you're at war with rather than someone Jesus has united you with. And that's just a, it's a dangerous place for us to be. And when it comes to how the world handles war versus what Jesus calls us to, to do, I, I believe Matthew chapter 18, for, for a lot of reasons actually, there's some great content in Matthew 18, how we work together and talk with each other and how we engage with each other in our interpersonal relationships. I'm going to encourage you to read the whole thing at some point this week. Um, I, I, think it's, I think it's a chapter that can guide us not only in how we talk to our brothers and sisters in Christ, but in how we treat them. And so I want to read for you Matthew chapter 18, um, starting in verse 21. Peter comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now listen, Peter was being generous because the... the uh, the, the order of the day, the, the oral law of the day that was taught by the Pharisees is that you, you forgive someone up to three times, all right? So strike three, you're out, you know, kind, kind of idea. And so Peter was being generous. It's like, okay, Jesus, like, I think I'm, I'm starting to grasp what you're talking about, about the whole grace and truth thing and how to interact with people. So let's, let's add another four times that we would forgive someone. And Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Jesus means indefinitely. Like, you, you just keep that. He doesn't say, like, well, on the 78th, though, man, that's a special number, <laughs> and that's when you get them. Because make sure you keep, you know, hopefully we're all keeping a record of wrongs, right? And so we can know when it's the 78th time, because that wouldn't be horrible. Um, therefore, and Jesus goes into talking about the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven uh, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. This is um, like the biggest number that you can think of is what Jesus is sharing here. So this is an astronomical amount. Nobody could repay this. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. And this wouldn't make up, you know, the money, but this was a, this was a punishment uh, for being that in, in debt. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will, repay, I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. You know, there's no way, you know, said, I will repay you. That, that's great, but he knew that that would never happen. And so he forgives. And there's a, there's a fantastic picture of, of who God is, his character and nature. But that's not the end of the story. Verse 28, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii, a couple, three, four months wages. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And I, I got to say, 
I, I just see too much. Again, I'm, I'm talking about the church in general uh, through in, our, in our country right now. It just seems like there's way too many brothers and sisters trying to choke each other out. Jesus' point is very clear. It doesn't require a whole lot of unpacking. The way we treat and talk about each other um, along the dividing lines of the world, um, it doesn't just have implications of the unity that God expects from the church. It's a foundational component of our own salvation. That's what Jesus says at the end of this passage. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Anything less than forgiveness of the perceived wrongs that we presume have been made against us by different opinions on worldly power structures, that, that ain't it. Even when the world is at war with each other, we're at peace with one another in God's kingdom. And that's the foundation from which we start when it comes to how we engage with the structures of this world. You know, I, I think... You know, as, as followers of Jesus, we, we understand, you know, the book of Revelation is there, and the point of that message that John writes to the persecuted church is that Jesus wins in the end. But don't miss that he's already won. You know, four years ago, I remember having people coming in to meet with me in my office crying because of the results of the previous election and how they saw people treating e each other. I saw people, like, celebrating way too much about the pain of other people. And, and we got to do this every four years. I mean, this is not, this is not a new thing. This is, this is something that we're engaged in regularly. And frankly, both reactions ignore what Jesus has already accomplished. Encouragement of one another and compassion for the lost, that's what drives what war we engage in, and that's a spiritual one. So I want you to imagine with me Jesus having not just an enemy like Judas, you know, within his closest followers, um, the, the 12 whom Jesus entrusts with proclaiming and leading in the kingdom of God, but let's also say, uh, let's imagine he's got men from all kinds of different political backgrounds that would sharply disagree about what a godly way forward would look like. Another hypothetical for you. It's, it's not hypothetical. You don't have to imagine at all. James and John, their mom came up to Jesus and said, hey, I want you to give them the top two positions in your earthly kingdom. So when you overthrow Rome, like I want them to be sitting on your left and right, and that would be amazing. And they're like, mom, come on. The rest of the disciples are ticked that she would do this because all of them are thinking about the power and authority that they could possibly have with Jesus in control. So they want to be in the cabinet when he overthrows Rome. And when he calls his disciples... And not only does he have James you know, and John vine for position, but he calls two who are called Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. And you might remember the list that I shared with you of some of the political realities that were there. Um, these two, Simon the Zealot, Matthew the tax collector, couldn't be on more opposite ends of the spectrum when you talk about politics, economics, and social issues. The tax collectors were reviled and considered unfaithful Jews because they supported Rome. Zealots wanted to overthrow Rome and reestablish an autonomous Israelite theocracy. Right? So, so when you come to, like, well, what's the path forward God wants us to? I mean, Jesus intentionally brings these guys in together to be a part of how the kingdom of God is shared and led throughout the world. And he unifies them on the common ground of God's kingdom and God's purpose. Neither of them 
were affirmed in their political positions, but they were both affirmed in pursuing God's kingdom. And as we engage in the political process, the economic process, the social process of our country and our world, as we vote, you know, we, we gotta have thoughtful and well-reasoned discussions, but we can't be jerks, and we gotta be ready to forgive. Because Jesus unites us on a different kingdom foundation. Be prepared to be drawn together by God who is greater than what is in the world and recognize that the fight against evil that we face is present in all human institutions that separate, but the kingdom of God calls us to lay down those arms and exchange them for the welcome arms of Jesus. And so that's where we got to go. That's where we got to start from. And then we build upon the other issues that are at play and that are stake, at stake and are real and that we should be engaged in and that Christians should be aware of and know about. Uh, but we've got to start from the right foundation, and that's a foundation that holds us together in common and unified and in worshiping the same God and pursuing the same kingdom. So that's where we're going to start. And over the next few weeks, uh, where we head, we'll, we'll get even more practical and drill down, to, uh, drill down into what Jesus, how Jesus describes this kingdom uh, that we're called into and, and what it looks like to practically engage with kingdoms of this world. Let me pray uh, for us together. We're going to take communion like we do every week at Velocity uh, because, once again, it brings us into to what we have in common together. Even with our totally different, uh, you know, opinions uh, in the things that are actually opinions um, and, and the, the ways in which we might be different, where you might be rooting for the Dodgers to win, you know, or you might be rooting for Tampa Bay. And, and those things just don't, those things just don't matter in the long run. And so this does, though, what, what Jesus has done, how he's brought us together through his death, burial, and resurrection. So we're going to share in that time together. I'm going to pray, and then um, at your own time, uh, as the band plays a song, uh, you can get up and, and share uh, in that time together. Let's pray. God, it is, um, it is difficult sometimes to keep perspective because there's so much effort spent on getting our attention to go in totally other places. God, we know, you, we know that you're with us, that your Holy Spirit is there, um, but it's got to be an intentional thing for us to listen to you and to be guided by you. God, help us over the next couple weeks to uh, tune out the noise the places, the people that, that are vying for us to spend all of our time and energy in the kingdoms of this world rather than your kingdom. God, we praise you for giving us a, a better path forward in this life. God, as we share in this time of communion together, we, we ask that you uh, make, us, make us aware of what it means to have you die on the cross for our sins, to be raised again, uh, for Jesus to be a living sacrifice for us so that we can be redeemed and reconciled to you and share that with each other and share that with those who desperately need it. God, we praise you. We give you the glory. You are our king. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.